0: Hello. Welcome to Lung Cancer Voices, a Lung Cancer Canada podcast. My name is Christina Sitt. You may recognize me if you listen to our What's New In webinar series. This special edition of Lung Cancer Voices has been adapted from the live webinar. If you like these webinars and the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. Thank you for your support.
1: Hello. My name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer.
0: Welcome to our What's New in Series, and today we are presenting What's New in the Rare Subtypes: Bros, Met, Rec, and Track. And so, before I turn it over to Dr. Wheatley Price and our panelists here today, I'm just going to go over a couple of housekeeping notes. So today, for the very first time, we are uh, we have some accessibility options that we are trying out. If you go on to your um, bottom right hand corner, you'll see live uh, transcript, and if you say show subtitles and the um, the Uh, the webinar will be transcribed in English for you so that uh, if you are hearing impaired there's a little bit of assistance there. For those that uh, would like to see the listen to to see the webinar in a different language go up to your left top left hand corner where you see the red live button click on that one and and uh, say view stream on custom live streaming service then you can choose the language in which you would like you um, can see the transcript. You won't see the transcript uh, with um, different uh, with the different presenters saying uh, for example Dr. Wheatley Price talking you'll see it more as a continuous stream but uh, you can choose it to see it in the language of your choosing. We are going to go through the webinar, and then we will um, hold all questions to the end. If you have any questions for our panelists today, please go to the Q&A box that is, tra- uh, that is situated on your bottom right-hand corner as well, and um, click on that, type your question in, and we will make sure that we will answer these at the end of the webinar. Just as a word before I turn it over in terms of question and answer, we can only answer general questions. We cannot answer questions uh, in regards to you. your your specific medical uh, situation. And we really encourage you to talk to your doctor when it comes to your own care. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Dr. Wheatley-Price.
1: Great. Thank you, Christina. Um, Welcome everybody um, to the latest in the What's New in Lung Cancer series that we started last year. Um, Please go to the LungCancerCanada.ca website if you want to look at previous Um, webinars that we've had, what's new in in immunotherapy, EGFR lung cancers, ALK lung cancers, what's new in 2021, what's new from the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference. Um, And there's one coming up next month with the the new president of Lung Cancer Canada, Dr. Stephanie Snow, and Dr. David Gandara um, from UC Davis in California. And that's going to be talking about what's new from ASCO, which is the big oncology conference that just happened last week. Uh, but today um, we're really excited to be getting into this topic, which is going to be busy. These are uh, my two guests for the webinar. Dr. Um, Alex Drillon uh, is a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center uh, in New York, uh, New York City, and uh, he's also one of the, um, well, he is the, the lead investigator and the lead author on a number of uh, very important clinical trials in rare subtypes of lung cancer that we're going to talk about so it's a it's a treat that dr drillons uh, with us today and equally a treat is dr pani chema who's the uh, medical director of oncology at the w- william osler health system in brampton dr chema and i go way back and recently she's been the uh, one of the authors on uh, a canadian paper on uh, novel targets in lung cancer uh, which is really a, a, a manuscript really on this on today's topic so, without further ado, we'll get right into it, and it'll be quite informal. We're on first name terms here. So, Alex, I'm gonna to come to you first, and maybe just, you could you set the scene for us, and, and what are rare subtypes of lung cancer? What, what do we mean when we talk about that?
2: Yeah, and uh, first of all, thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you to everyone that called in. I'll start by saying that there's no agreed upon definition of what counts as rare. In my mind, if you look at patients with a type of lung cancer called non-small cell lung cancer, you could say that if you find a certain gene change or molecular change in less than five out of 100 people, that that could count as rare, and that certainly represents a lot of the different groups that we're going to talk about today. But we also need to think about how common lung cancer is in general, and it's much more common than many other cancers out there. And so even if it's something like a one out of a hundred chance that you'll have a particular gene change type of event that could um, uh, add up to a substantial number of patients around the world.
1: Right. And so for Canadian context, there's about 30,000 lung cancers diagnosed a year uh, in Canada. Non-small cell lung cancer would be probably 25,000 of them. So yeah, one in 100 starts to add up. But Dr. Chima, one in 100 is only relevant if we're doing the tests to detect these. Could you maybe just expand a little bit on Dr. Drillon's uh, initial answer about how, how do we find these rare subtypes? What what do those processes look like?
3: Yeah, so I I think the the key shift with lung cancer we've had this key shift now for many years that we had you know two main subtypes of lung cancer in the non-small cell lung cancer world we had squamous and we had non-squamous, but as time evolved we one of the first mutations was EGFR and that really changed the field the way we thought of lung cancer that there was these small different. Uh, small cancers within a diagnosis of lung cancer. So the question that we asked initially was, does this patient have this molecular alteration? So when we had one gene, we were looking for EGFR, then we added ALK, for example, was does this patient have this molecular alteration? And so we would do what we would call single gene tests, which made sense because we were only looking for a few things. However, as we've gone and learned more, now we have many different subtypes that we're gonna be talking about this today in t- terms of ROS, NTREC, RET, BRAF, um, NRG1, like there's many that are coming and being developed. The question now does, is changes. So this is how we need to think of lung cancer. It's not, do you have this molecular alteration? When I look at a patient, I say, what molecular alteration do you have? And when you frame the question that way, it just makes sense that you need to do more sequencing, uh, more next generation sequencing, meaning you sequence the tumor to find out what molecular alteration you have. And so by doing that, instead of single gene testing, it saves time, you're not going back to the tissue, and as we all know, with lung cancer, that we'll have to get biopsies, and uh, if and 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 patients that are on here will know that going through a biopsy is is a big thing, and so uh, recognizing that and, and not and preserving that tissue and doing all the testing up front preserves that. There's different ways to do next generation sequencing. You can do the tissue, but what also is becoming and evolving, and it's it's quite u- frequently used in the US and Dr. Drilling can talk about that, but it's coming in Canada as well in that you can sequence your, your tumor and figure out what, what molecular alteration you have by just taking a blood sample. However, what's important to know is that if you find something, it's very useful. And we know that from trials now that if you find it and act on it just the way you would have done if you had a biopsy of the tumor, that it would work out in terms of similar responses. However, if it's negative, we still have to go to tissue. So that's another key point um, in terms of the sequence of of all of these um, molecular testing.
1: Thank you. you. So sometimes I think the way we think about this is is a, a pie chart and, you know, In back in the old days, you're saying there was two types there's squamous lung cancer and non squamous, but now we're dividing up our our pie into lots and lots of different slices, some of which are very small, you can detect those either one at a time, is this a blueberry pie or a raspberry pie. Or with now what you're describing next generation sequencing we like get a genetic fingerprint of the whole thing at once and you can do that from a biopsy or from a blood test. Did I sum that up?
3: Yeah, I thought that was great.
1: So Alex, I, I'm gonna come back to you and, and because uh, Paneet mentioned there, you know, what you might be doing in the US. At the recent ASCO conference, there, there were some podium presentations, some of the major presentations, well, it was all virtual, of course, there was no real podium, but that talked about equity in this type of testing and that not everyone actually ends up getting these tests what are the barriers would you say to actually before before we talk about the subtypes themselves what are the barriers to getting the, the tests to, to
2: to find those subtypes yeah i think the barriers of those appear at many different levels obviously on the end of payers um, we should apply more pressure to make sure that insurance companies turn around and cover these sort of one large test that picks up everything that you're looking for but we've seen that it's, it's not only possible in certain geographic environments, but also possible for at the level of the government, for the government to say, we will provide coverage for next generation sequencing, that one big test. And examples include South Korea, where the government has provided coverage for next generation sequencing. So I think that it'll hopefully become easier as we move into the future, where the tests cross fingers become cheaper and turnaround time uh, goes down. But moving to another major barrier, it's really education, right? Education across sort of both providers and patients with cancer, exactly why we're doing webinars like we're doing today. And that's because we want there to be an emphasis on actually looking for it and using these tests. So I'm optimistic that things will um, get better as we move into the next decade. Uh, So let's see how things shake
1: out. Actually, one of the things that struck me with rates of NGS testing, and this is in the US, was that even though they were lower than we might have anticipated, even over in the last two years, they've been rapidly increasing. And so, uh, and in Canada, actually in Ontario, just just recently, there's more funding per patient to get this kind of testing done. So uh, hopefully we won't be having this kind of discussion soon. Okay, well, let's get right into this, Alex. We've previously had a webinar dedicated to EGFR lung cancers with Dr. Moloski and, and Dr. Tony Mark, and then we had one dedicated to ALK lung cancers with Drs. Camage and Dr. Lael. So we're not going to touch on those two subtypes, but maybe could you could, could you maybe just kind of give us a broad view of what are the the names of the mutations and how common they are of the ones that we we can now have effective treatments for, and then we'll kind of go
2: back and forth picking them off one by one. Oh yeah, absolutely. And for many of you watching, this will probably sound like alphabet soup, Uh, but we are gonna give you the names of the other genes and tell you how common those are. But before I get into that, it's important to point out that the name of the gene is not the only thing that matters because you have to have the right type of gene change. Okay, And one example here is the EGFR world where there are the classical EGFR gene changes, but then there are other gene changes if you've heard of things like exon 20, where the approach to treatment is different based on how those cancers behave. But with that being said, I think the the second major point is that there is maybe a very simplified dichotomy between this one bin of gene changes where the buzzword is mutation and this other bin of gene changes where the buzzword is fusion or rearrangement, okay? And in the former, you have genes like those special EGFR uh, changes I mentioned, HER2, uh, BRAF, and MET. Now, many of these, the frequency is about one to two out of a hundred. But for MET, for example, it can go up to four out of 100 patients uh, with a, a type of non-small cell lung cancer. So that's the first bin. The second major group, as we mentioned, these are the fusions or the rearrangements, and the one that's most known is ALK, which Paul mentioned. Uh, the other genes are ROS1, RET, and NTRK, and it's a little confusing because there are three different NTRAC genes, but. Thankfully, they're just called NTRAP one, two, and three, and the frequencies there are also in the order of, you know, across all three genes, uh, about two patients or less out of hundred patients with lung adenocarcinomas. Right.
1: Thank you. So that, that that's a great overview. So you know, and putting all of if we add all of these together, uh, EGFR, HER2, BRAF, MET, ALK, ROS1, RET, NTRAC. And I'm going to throw in KRAS as well, Alex. We, we're getting up to roughly how, how big a segment of my homemade blueberry pie are we, are we up to now to include all of lung cancer patients who have one of these mutations? Is, is, it, is it 10% because they're all sort of 1%
2: or are we up to 50% now? Yeah, I think, you know, conservatively, it's it's at least one out of three patients. Depending on which subgroup you test, it could rise to, uh, you know, the order of um, half of cases. Right. Again, depending on which, which patient groups uh, you're looking at. Okay.
1: Pani, would you like to comment on that question with, with regards to Canadian populations? Are we thinking one in three might... A patient um, might have one of these mutations or, or rearrangements.
3: Yeah, I think our data shows that it's very similar. And Canada has a very diverse multicultural um, background. And so some, you know, in some populations within Canada, where there's a high Asian population, non-smoking population, the rates are actually very high, you know, in BC, uh, very high. uh, Where I work, uh, there's big South Asian population as well. So depending on different pockets, there's going to be different rates of this. So if you went to Atlantic Canada, high rate of KRAS G12C based on the population, the demographic, and and also taking into consideration, you know different risk factors and things like that.
1: Okay Paneet I'm going to stick with you for the next question so we're now going to start to dive down a little bit into these subtypes but if you're listening you'll recognize that we've just listed a a, a number of rare subtypes of lung cancer so we're going to try and give you some information about each one of them it'll be hopefully uh, that nice combination of not too much detail to confuse or take up too much of the rest of the time but but enough to provide the information that you're going to need. To do this, I thought what we would do is we, we're, we're gonna go roughly in order of what's available in Canada. So EGFR drugs and alt drugs, we're not gonna talk about it this, um, in this seminar because there's other webinars that have addressed that. But the next one that received regulatory approval in Canada was called ROS1, R-O-S-1. So Dr. Chima, ROS1, an overview, I guess. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll maybe I'll ask the same kind of questions. How, how common is it? Is there a particular type of lung cancer patient who might get this type of lung cancer? And is there an effective treatment?
3: So ROS1 is of one of those fusion molecular alterations. So in the bucket of those fusions or rearrangements, and it occurs in about 1% uh, of patients with non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous. Okay, so the adenocarcinoma population. Generally, we see ROS1 in younger patients um, that are non-smokers. Again, the average lung cancer patient is 70. So when I say younger, you know, we're looking at averages in any, any, the are about 50s and the 50s kind of range, 50, 55 range. Um, but having a young patient in front of you in the 30s, 40s, um, you would definitely be thinking ROS1. In terms of treatments, we've, uh, we've had evidence for treatments back in 2014 the first reports of crizotinib, which um, the audience may know from ALK World, um, was the first approved for ALK, and, and that's where we've known that there's been effective therapies, and crizotinib is a very effective therapy for ROS1 uh, positive non-small cell lung cancer, and it's approved in Canada. It's now funded in some certain regions as well, but I do want to highlight in terms of equity, it took us about six years from the data to actually come out to actually get approval and, and access for patients in some of our jurisdictions. Other areas, hopefully, we're more fortunate to have earlier access. But now we're in the next and next um, paradigm, and this is. This is actually quite common in um, actionable mutations that we find first drugs that we use, but then we try to look for a second generation type of drugs. And the importance of those drugs are getting into the brain, treating the brain, and the other one attacking resistance profiles. So we learned how these, these um, drugs stop working and what the resistance profile is. So these next generation try to address that as well. So these other drugs that are coming out are, for example, entrectinib. Um, will, uh, is being studied, a drug called repotrectinib as well. There's some evidence with lorlatinib, again, some overlap between the ALK world, but there are clinical trials as well addressing this still in terms of what you know best therapy we should use. And I think it's really important that we find ROS1 up front. This is a test that should be done at diagnosis um, because generally um, from my recommendation that we should target the ROS1 fusion as the first uh, step of therapy with someone with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Right. So timing and getting the re- results is extremely important. Okay,
1: thank you for that. I've just made a couple of notes uh, just to comment on. Uh, your, for those of you listening, that the, the regulatory process to get a drug approved, is, is there's multiple steps in Canada and um, ROS1 has um, took, as Dr. Chima said, took a while to get through. Fortunately, I think it was a bit of a pioneer in the way our regulatory system look at these rare subtypes. And since ROS1 drugs, uh, particularly chrysotin have gotten approval, other, other drugs and other indications that we're gonna talk about have started to get more positive approval. So that's been a very, a very good thing. You mentioned getting to the brain and that's um, why is that important? Is it, this, does ROS1 lung cancer spread to the brain easily?
3: Yeah, I, I and, and there is the risk of spreading to the brain or presenting with um, brain metastases, which obviously causes a lot of morbidity. Um, so if we control what's happening outside the brain, it's very important to control the brain as well. So that's the, okay. with the next generation targeted therapies, we always keep that in mind when, when we're, we're studying them too.
1: Okay. And uh, just one other thing, just to plug, you mentioned developing drugs to overcome resistance. When somebody's cancer becomes resistant to the first drug, moving on to something else. So the last What's New in Lung Cancer we did, uh, Dr. Justin Gaynor from, uh, from Boston was, uh, was one of our guests with Dr. Cheryl Ho from Vancouver. And he was specifically talking about how to address resistance in lung cancer. So it's worthwhile having a listen to that. Okay, we're gonna go back to New York. So Alex, uh, you, you are probably not aware of all that's been happening in the Canadian regulatory system recently. But BRAF was the next the next uh, sub slice of uh, slice of the pie that had drugs
2: approved just this year, earlier this year. So w- what's BRAF? Yeah. And um, there are a few good points here. And I'll start with the fact that sometimes these gene changes that you find in certain lung cancers can also be found in other cancers, and we'll circle back to that later on. Yeah. So you may have heard about BRAF in the context of another cancer called melanoma, which is a skin cancer. And um, I think they were a little bit ahead of the game and informed how we would investigate treatments for lung cancer with BRAF. Now, uh, the second point is it goes back to the flavors, right? You're looking for a particular flavor called V600E uh, which can make up about half of these mutations, which we mentioned earlier on. Uh, but long story short, if you find this in our data set, it, it occurs in about two out of 100 patients with lung adenocarcinomas. The third point is that sometimes you may need two pills to pack the best punch against the cancer, right? So you've heard about ROS1 and you've heard about the other pills that Dr. Chima mentioned, but in this particular situation, the, the best strategy is to give two pills together called the Brafnib and trametinib, where you see the highest likelihood of shrinking the cancer and keeping it under control for a very long time. So. Um, we have approvals of Dabrafenib and trametinib; those two pills. Uh, hopefully that'll spread to um, other uh, regulatory environments, but there are also other pills that have been tried in the melanoma world um, that are being investigated now for lung cancers and uh, with BRAF and we'll see um, how that all works out. But it, it's certainly a subset where there's a lot of good data on these pills being very effective.
1: Alex, I'm going to just put you on the spot and go a little bit off piste here from the, from the preparation we did. We, we often get asked questions about immunotherapy in people with lung cancer whose, whose cancer have these rare mutations. And we've talked in previously in the, uh, with Dr. Kamage in the ALK population that immunotherapy is not that effective and, and not that effective in ROS1. But what about BRAF? is immunotherapy work for people with the BRAF mutations?
2: Yeah, so my approach to answering this question is not to be too, too dogmatic, I should say. And the way I'll answer it is talking about odds, right? I think that for certain drivers or certain gene changes, like ALK, the odds of responding to immunotherapy, especially when it's given by itself, are low, okay? For BRAF in particular, if you look at some of the global data that's been shared between hospitals, the likelihood of response, we say, or shrinking the cancer substantially, that number does look higher, and it is in the order of 15 to 20 percent chances of substantial shrinkage of, of somebody's cancer. So that's important to keep in mind that there may be some patients who could respond to immunotherapy and stay on it for a very long time. However, when you pick treatment, the thought is always to pick the best treatment up front. And if you now think about the response to those two pills I mentioned in BRAF, where the frequency is north of 60%, obviously you would reach for the pills first. Could you do immunotherapy later on in somebody's course? Certainly, it could be considered, uh, in addition to considering other things like chemotherapy. But that's the data that we have in this space.
1: That's a terrific answer. Thank you. Can I just, I'm just going to follow up question. When you said just north of 60% chance of shrinkage, now, if I'm interpreting this right, you're from the research studies to be defined as having shrinkage, you, the cancer's got to really substantially shrink. So while it's it's 60% plus that meet the mark of substantial shrinkage, but there's a whole lot of other people in the remaining 40% that the cancers will also shrink, just not enough to meet that sort of regulatory
2: bar. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely true. And it's a very important message because the data that you'll see released publicly is based on that metric of shrinking by at least you know a little under a third of a cancer size if you add everything up. However, for BRAF and for many of the other genes that we'll discuss, the vast majority of patients will actually benefit from treatment and may have you know, lesser degrees of shrinkage but uh, equally have a likelihood of staying on the pills for a very long time. So the odds are even higher than the numbers that you hear about. Right.
1: So there's one measure is how much does it shrink, but uh, equally importantly is how long does those, do those effects last, okay. And perhaps okay. more important even. <laughs> yeah, maybe more important, yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, so we've, we've touched on ROS1 and we've touched on BRAF. Parnit, I'm gonna come back to you now for a MET or c exon 14 to give it, or skipping mutations. of Lots of different names I've heard for this this type of one. Just at this ASCO conference, American Society of Clinical Oncology, biggest cancer conference in the world. Just ten days ago, there were some there were some nice updates about drugs for MET lung cancer. Could, could you could you go through that sequence of questions for MET?
3: Sure. So the way I think about MET, um, I really kind of simplify it and make it into two. So the MET exon fourteen skipping is what we kind of define as a true oncogenic driver, similar to ROS1, similar to RET, similar to BRAP V600E. It's usually mutually exclusive to the other driver mutations. And it happens in about 4% of patients. Now that we're testing it, it really is more, more frequent than I had anticipated as well. Now, in terms of medics on 14 skipping, there are treatments available that are targeted therapies. We have more um, specific type of MET uh, inhibitors now, one called TopotNib as well as capmatinib, that have shown very good data. About two-thirds of patients respond to these treatments, and again, it's an oral treatment and well-tolerated. So again, another important actionable mutation to test up front. Now, the other thing when we, and I'll just add to this point that there is a subgroup of patients, someone called, a group called pulmonary sarcomatoid carcinoma. These patients um, have a high chance of having this med-exon 14 skipping. Now, there's debate though, again, you know, in terms of treatment for these patients, because there is some evidence that these patients may respond to immunotherapy too, so you know, not being, putting all patients into one bucket saying, this is the best therapy, all patients should get this therapy. We understand that there is some nuances, maybe in some categories, they may benefit from chemoimmunotherapy, but it just opens the armamentarium you have available to be able to treat patients. Now the second one is MET amplification. So MET amplification, I am not entirely convinced that it's actually an oncogenic driver unless there's really, really, really high levels of it. But MET amplification is often a resistant mechanism to other types of treatments. So for example, EGFR, which we're not talking about today, but one of the common mechanisms of resistance is metamplification. amplification. So, but it is targetable with some of these therapies as well. At ASCO, Potnib updated their data. Really small numbers. There's some data with capmatinib, but certainly I have used capmatinib in very in patients with very very high met amplification. So this subgroup though, with met amplification, the the prototype of patients that have de novo met amplification are a bit different, you know, tend tend to be more smokers. Whereas the met amplification, met exon skipping, again, you see kind of in non-smokers, but you also see in smokers as well. So it's the characteristics of this mutation is not as clean cut. There's different subtypes, even within the met alteration world.
1: Okay. Now I'm going to Try, Pani, there was some uh, bit of science words in there. So a mutation, we just imagine we all have 26 pairs of genes from our parents. A mutation is where one of them goes wrong in one particular place. And when it goes wrong in one particular place, the, the message that that gives the cell goes wrong. And in the case of cancer, it tells the cancer to grow. Amplification is where that bit of the gene there's more than one copy of it. There's just there's too much of it. Is that would you say that's a fair simplification? Alex is nodding. So yeah, we'll, we'll go it, down. So <laughs> so when you so so just when we're talking about MET, there's these two kind of versions of MET. There's the mutation with one bit going wrong, we call that MET exon 14. And then there's the too many versions of MET, which is the MET amplification. And so the I think you mentioned 4%. Is that for the amplification or is that for the mutation or is that all combined?
3: So the met exon skipping would be about 4% and okay. and the interesting thing is this is actually found in squames as well in about le- a little bit less than 1% too.
1: Okay so we can see that in both and, and a point you made actually which I'm not sure we've stressed but all of the treatments we've talked about so far EGFR and ALP from the previous webinars but ROS1, BRAF and met they're all pills uh, so uh, we're not talking about coming to sit in the, in a chair in the chemotherapy unit for, for hours on end. Uh, these, these are, are generally pills. And, and of course, anything can have a side effect, but generally well tolerated. Alex, I've asked you about stuff that, that you're not famous in the lung cancer world for, but you're, you're, you're more well known in the lung cancer world for a, a couple of the other ones. So, so let's move on to, well, should we go with RET next? I, I'm going to pick RET because in Canada, the drug that you're gonna talk about, I think, selpacatinib, just yesterday was approved by Health Canada. So that's a nice bar that we've just met. Could, could you tell us about RET, how common it is, treatments, maybe yours, what happened in this successful study you ran?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if we remember the two major bins of gene changes that we talked about earlier, apart from the increased number of copies, red falls into that fusion or rearrangement buzzword category and maybe just to add to to the simplified descriptions what happens is one gene kind of hooks up with another gene and because of that it becomes much more active and leads to cancer growth but at the heart of it if you still inhibit or stop the growth of the core or central gene, then you could decrease the likelihood of the cancer growing and spreading. So this gene change, the RET fusion, is found in anywhere from one to two out of 100 patients. And uh, it's similarly found, uh, like ALK, in patients who have never smoked or maybe smoked a little bit in the past, um, and mostly in adenocarcinomas. We've mentioned that term. Of the lung, but thankfully, like alk, also there are pills that have been explored that can work very well against the red fusions. And I'll just briefly say that we had old pills. You know, the names of those are cabozantinib, vandetinib Those worked a little bit, but had a lot of side effects. But this newer wave of pills are the selective pills, which means they have a cleaner profile. They really just zoom in and inhibit red and are unlikely to inhibit other things. And because of that, it, it was a major paradigm shift for us. We saw uh, higher rates of activity and also much improved uh, tolerability compared to the older pills. And no surprise, we've seen the approval of two of these um, selective pills. Uh, recently, one is called sel- selpercatnib that Uh, I'm glad to hear has gotten approval in Canada. But the other contemporary one that you may hear about is called Pralcetinib. The pills are very similar in that the likelihood of response is very high. Patients can stay on the pills for a very long time. They also can, like uh, Parnit mentioned, effectively get into the brain. So these really check off all of the the checkboxes that we like to see for a, a treatment that's um, very amenable to being given over a long period of time that can keep cancer in check uh, durably, we say.
1: Yeah, I remember when you presented the results of the, the study a couple of years ago now, I guess, and uh, it was very exciting. What struck me about that presentation, Alex, was that when, when these drugs work, they, they, they seem to work for quite a long time. Could you maybe expand on I mean, everybody's different, so we're not, you know, in in terms of averages. But you know, we're talking—we're not talking about controlling the cancer for a few months here. We're talking more in the years.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you'll see again those median or average numbers. But just to give you an example of how long someone can stay um, on one of these pills, the the trial first opened at my hospital in mid 2017. And the first patient that I put on actually got a lower dose of the pill, which is how we start exploring these pills. We kind of go up on the dose to see what the best dose is. She had a great response even at the lowest dose. And up to today, remains on selpercatinib with nice control of her cancer. And it's hard to say how long some patients can stay on these pills because I have even rare examples of people whose cancers have EGFR on an EGFR pill that are out 10 years. Sounds really crazy. I'll highlight that it's not the most common outcome, but it's certainly something that we've seen in some of our patients.
1: Yes, and I think I can put my hand up for EGFR and ALK, people who've been on for many, many years. And I guess selpacatinib then, four years is about as long as we can say right now, if the first person at Memorial Sloan Kettering in in 2017. So that's terrific. Okay, so we're getting through this now. We've got about 10 more minutes before we go to questions. Alex, I'm gonna stay with you to talk about n track, and then Pani, just to get you prepped, I'll come to you for KRAS afterwards. So Dr. Drillon, I have one person in my practice with an n track or NTRK fusion. And if I'm not misunderstanding this, this is a really interesting type of fusion because it's it, it's not very common in lung cancer, but it it's not just lung cancer where we see this. So maybe you could, this is a new kind of concept for a lot of us, isn't it, the, the NTRK or NTRK?
2: Yeah, actually lots of good stories for this gene. And it's a shining example of what we're trying to get at with the equity question, right? Um, so what Paul is saying is that this fusion, it's found in lung cancers, but also across many different other cancer types. Okay, and beyond that, it's not just found in a, in cancers in adults, but also found in many cancers in kids. So infants, you know, uh, children, adolescents. Because of that, it led to this strategy of what you might have heard is called a basket trial, where everyone comes onto a trial if they have the fusion and we don't care how old they are or what the cancer looks like under the microscope and fast forward to the end of the tale for two of these pills larotrectinib and intrectinib we found on the basket trials that they work very well they can work for a very long time they work in the brain they work across adults children and infants and they work across different cancer types And So I think that hopefully if we can get more coverage for molecular profiling across ages and across other cancer types, you'll see that even if an event like this is very rare, and I'll point out additionally that of the genes that we've spoken about, it's probably the rarest of the list today. If you find it and you're that one patient, it's extremely meaningful. because it means that you can have access to either larotrectinib or entrectinib if it's approved uh, where you are and you can, uh, you can uh, have your cancer controlled for a very long time. So a really nice story here. Yes.
1: So people might see this phrase tumor agnostic, which I guess it means that it doesn't care what type of tumor it is like lung cancer or bowel cancer or, or some of the pediatric cancers. If you've got the n fusion regardless of age or where it started, these pills tend to work.
2: So in lung cancer, how common is it in lung cancer, Alex? It's way less than 1%. But this is why we should be looking at all of these genes, so that if you're in that bucket, the test that's done, that one big test with all of the genes will cover NTRAC, even though it's not as common as the others.
1: And I guess for people listening who want to get involved in supporting Lung Cancer Canada and advocating for lung cancer, you know, this is an opportunity. This drug, larotrectinib, has been back and forth with our regulatory system. Initially, it was partially approved, then it was denied. It's gone back again. It's been provisionally approved again. It's now going back for another review. And our regulatory bodies are struggling to figure out how to deal with a tumor agnostic drug that they haven't had to address this before. And when it's so rare in lung cancer, you know, and Dr. Drillon's studies were part of the primary submission to the Health Canada and the Canadian review system, there were only 12 lung cancer patients in that whole group, and uh, none of them had their cancer growing. On this drug, they were all controlled or dramatically shrinking, but the regulatory systems struggle with seeing twelve, a number of twelve, and when they, they want to see hundreds. So, um, if you want to support Lung Cancer Canada, we 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 provide uh, input and and advocacy for approval of these drugs, uh, which is very important. Okay, so we've gone from maybe the rarest new one, NTRK, to one that's potentially the most common of the new ones. So we call it a rare subtype and Dr. Drillon mentioned you know less than five per hundred might classify as rare. So this is going to be the exception. I'm going to I'm going to break the rule here and we're going to change the word rare for this situation to novel. So there's a new one called KRAS, Dr. Chima, which could be a game changer.
3: Yeah so, so that pie chart going back to your delicious pie that you had initially. So KRAS makes up a quarter of that. It makes up a quarter of that of the non small cell lung cancer, uh, non squamous patients. So it actually makes up a large chunk of patients with non small cell lung cancer, but it's been large part been unactionable. There's many failed, failed trials. I think all of us have probably ran KRAS trials that unfortunately were not successful. Mm-hmm. But what was proven is there's a subtype, again, another little piece of that. Where half of them, of those KRAS, are something called KRAS G12C, so even getting more kind of definition on what type of mutation the KRAS actually is, and at, targeting KRAS G12C has been effective, and so we have two therapies, sotorasib that's approved in the U.S., and there's another drug, Adagrasib, that's also uh, in, in advanced clinical trials um, looking at this, the responses to KRAS G12C aren't as high as the ones that we've seen with the other molecular alterations that we've talked about. I think we've gotten a bit spoiled with the numbers. So the place of where this therapy is, is going to be maybe a little bit different. Okay. So when we test for this, we know these uh, patients that have KRAS mutations respond really well to immunotherapy and chemo immunotherapy. So having this right now, it would be accessible after patients have had their first line treatment. But then obviously clinical trials are ongoing to see maybe there's a role for it in the first line, mixing it with immunotherapy, mixing it with chemo immunotherapy and all of these kind of aspects, but certainly exciting because we have another weapon in our armamentarium to be able to treat patients with KRAS G12C. Yeah.
1: So KRAS, just to go back to my pie, my fruit pie, let's call it a mixed berry pie. There's a, 25% of the berries are blueberries. That represents the KRAS. But actually what you're saying is the one we're looking for is the wild blueberries in there, which is only about half of those. So 10 to 12% maybe. And then there's a few uh, Saskatoon berries in there. That's maybe the Ross one. And then uh, some very rare berry can be the N- NTRK. Uh, when Christina turns her camera on, that is the hook for me to uh, to stop talking. But before Christina, I'm, I'm gonna just take the chair's prerogative here. I'm, I'm just gonna go back to with one one kind of wrap up question for for, for Alex and Parnit. All of this has happened just in the last few years. It's this massive rush of new targets and drugs and really exciting. What's your hope, if you could just sort of sum up, what would be your big hope for the next two to five years? Alex,
2: we'll start with you. Yeah, I think we've already mentioned it, that we have very good coverage for tests that find these genes so that we can actually match patients to the best possible therapies. And I want to say maybe the second major hope is that we find more slices of the pie. That way, we extend our reach to other patients based on the gene signatures of their cancer.
1: Okay, I'm going to find previously undiscovered types of berries in my pie. Right. Uh, Paneet?
3: Yeah, and I just I just hope, and I've been um, advocating this for years, is that the si- that science and access are are more closely combined. And I always say this that with these mutations, if you don't look for it, you will not find it. Um, so I'll just end with that.
1: Yeah, thank you. And and equity was a big, you know, we've mentioned this a few times. It was a big uh, theme. In fact, it was the whole theme. The title theme of the ASCO conference last week was was about equity. There was a sobering report from the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer, or CPAC, back in November just of last year, a special report on lung cancer and equity, which, which identified the problems that we face in, in our country with poorer outcomes and uh, higher rates of diagnosis in rural communities and, and those from lower socioeconomic groups, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit populations. So when we're talking about this and progress in science you're right we have to make sure it becomes accessible to all all right christina over to you
0: Thank you, Dr. Wheatley-Price. And I, um, there's been a lot of questions come in I'm just, and a lot of questions on testing in lung cancer. So I'm going to turn the first question on to Dr. Chima. And just from a very basic standpoint, when we're talking about testing in lung cancer, it's not in the mutation in your lung cancer. It is not the same as a mutated gene in your, your own personal DNA, is that correct?
3: Yes, that's a very good question. And I, and that's a question that comes up quite often. So mm-hmm. when we do testing, we do testing on the actual tumor. So these are gene mutations that are on the tumor called somatic mutations. So you don't pass them on to children, for example. However, there are some rare t- situations where there's some familial uh, predisposition that's very, very rare. So it's really testing the actual tumor and seeing what went wrong in that tumor specifically. So when you target it, you're actually targeting the tumor and not
2: everything else.
0: And Dr. Dreon, what happens when you have a tumor that can't can't access and you can't get a biopsy?
2: Yeah, uh, another great question. So, we've now developed the technology to find any DNA that the cancer releases in the blood so that if you're not safely able to do a tumor biopsy, you can do what we call a liquid biopsy, which is a blood test. And if there's enough of the cancer's DNA that's spilled over into the blood, Um, we can run a very focused test to look for many of the genes that were mentioned today.
0: So how far are we away from making that a reality for everyone to be able to do away with the biopsy or is we always going to have to have that biopsy?
2: Yes, another excellent question because there is always still a, a role for looking at the cancer under the microscope. I see there were some questions on resistance and one unique way that cancers can cheat and sort of figure out how to outsmart some of these targeted therapies is they can change how they look under the microscope and become a different type of lung cancer. And you won't necessarily see that in the liquid biopsy because you'll only see the genes without seeing what the cancer looks like. And by that, I mean that you won't be able to tell if it's something like small cell lung cancer uh, for which a certain flavor of chemotherapy or or types of chemotherapy might be better as the next step.
0: And uh, Dr. Wheatley-Price, how early should we be testing? We've had some questions here on about uh, testing during early stage lung cancer.
1: Right, timely question. (laughs) So the way that most of these drugs have been developed is in people whose cancers have spread or metastasized. Yeah. And you've heard from our experts today that you know these drugs are very good at, at, at shrinking the cancer and often keeping it shrunk for many years, but not considered necessarily a cure, considered a control treatment, hopefully keeping people well and healthy and active and productive for long periods of time. What would be great is if we caught the lung cancer early and some maybe surgery or radiotherapy to try and eradicate it, could these pills then increase the chance of a cure or reduce the risk of a recurrence? And we have, we, we can do that now with EGFR lung cancer. And just 12 months ago at the ASCO meeting from last year, we, we learned that the EGFR drug osimertinib dramatically reduces the risk of a recurrence. So that's a bit of a long-winded start to answer the question, but basically to detect EGFR now we have to detect it in everybody regardless of stage. And so if we're also now moving to the point where we're not going to do an EGFR test and then do an ALK test and then do a ROS test and then a BRAF test, we're going to do this next generation sequencing, one test to get the whole fingerprint of the cancer, uh, we're certainly I think moving to the point that every lung cancer patient at every stage should have this test. I, I'd, be, I'd like to know actually from Alex, what happens in New York to, at, at your center? Does, does everybody get this at every
2: stage? Yeah, there's a big emphasis on doing it regardless of stage, especially yeah. given the number of trials that are up and running. And the one quick nugget I will add is uh, goes back to that advocacy you mentioned, Paul, around larotrectinib. The actual approval of the drug, at least here in the US, does include patients who don't have metastatic or spread disease. So if it's limited a certain area um, and um, you have this NTRAC signature, you're able to use it in what we call a locally advanced setting. So certainly these approvals are changing in form over time.
0: So it seems like a best practice is that if you have, you're being diagnosed, you've confirmed lung cancer, the tumor should just be tested.
1: I, I think we need to move to that point pretty soon, Christina. Yes, uh, all patients with lung cancer get tested at any stage.
0: So I'm gonna, going to move to Dr. Chima about, with this question, and we're, this question is really asking about lung cancer as a post-echo disease. Some provinces are are sequential testing, others are panel testing. How do we get to that stage where everybody is um, is tested using next-generation sequencing?
3: Yeah. So, so that's what the whole equity issue is. And I think as clinicians, I, you know, it just, it, it's just, we want to advocate for all patients. And so next generation sequencing fortunately just got funded, for example, in Ontario. And so I, hopefully that that's a push for other provinces to be able to do the same. I mean, this is where we, we have to start somewhere. We've, you know, locally at our center, we've done it. And then our, fortunately the province has done it that all centers that are you know, doing single gene testing so essentially move towards next generation sequencing. And hopefully the province of Ontario by making that nice bold move of funding it um, will, will actually roll into other provinces.
0: And so I'm going to um, take that as a segue to move it a little bit into advocacy. And there's, there's a lot of excitement in the chat about when cell has has been approved. So now they're asking, the question is, how do we get this covered in each of the different provinces? And I know that's very a uh, passionate interest yeah. of both uh, Dr. Shima and Dr. Wheatley Price. But I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Wheatley Price first, and maybe Dr. Shima, you can uh, jump in.
1: Yeah. So I mean, without drowning people in the names of different regulatory bodies, Canada does have a fairly complex system. So Health Canada approves a drug, gives it a license, but it but it is not. Part of the process of of agreeing whether we should use it or not. It's just saying, yeah, this is an effective and safe drug. It then goes through a process called a health technology assessment, which is run by a group called CADTH, C A D T H, and they perform a health technology assessment, make a recommendation about whether a drug should be approved. So the larotrectinib, for example, has just been provisionally approved by that HTA process. It's going back for a, a review, which hopefully will rubber stamp it. Then, it then goes to another group called the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance, which is where the price is negotiated between the provinces and the company. When that is done, it then goes back to each individual province or territory for them to finally put it onto their formulary. So you can see that it's a complex multi-step pr- process. It takes time, there's redundancies. There are debates about whether, uh, how, how effective it is Quebec has its own system called INESS, I-N-E-S-S-S, which runs similar processes, but they don't always come up with the same decision as other provinces. So that's a bit of an issue. There's a big debate around National Pharmacare right now. So complex, time-consuming. What we do ask of pharmaceutical companies is when a drug like selpacatinib gets Health Canada approval, we ask them to open what we call a compassionate access program. So the drug is available to patients while it's going through that whole process. Not all companies do that, but most companies are are quite generous in in providing those programs.
0: Dr. Shima, any?
3: Comments on that. No, I think that's great. I mean, with the advocacy in me is that I got that email and this response email was, is there a compassionate access program? Um, so I think all of us, you know, it's great to have Health Canada approval. Unfortunately, relying on private drug plans makes inequity, right? So we want to make sure everybody has the same access to this, the, the medication while we work through this kind of lengthy long process.
0: And I'm going to plug in a uh, put in a plug for Ellen Cancer Canada at this point in, t- in saying that patient voices absolutely make a difference in this process. It was absolutely critical to uh, to one uh, for chisotin chisotin for ROS1 being covered in Canada because of the amount of patient voices that we were able to gather. So uh, for those of you that are listening, we will be doing a, a submission for public coverage for uh, subrecatinib. And if you'd like anybody who'd like to add your voices, it doesn't have if you're not Canadian, it doesn't matter. Our health technology assessment bodies really do uh, take into account the fact that experience on the drug is experience on the drug. So connect with us, share your story, so that we can quickly get uh, this uh, this covered. And with that, I'm going to thank my panel here, and uh, we I'm, and um, say. Today, we could have, I think we could have easily gone two hours because this is such a fulsome some topic. But in closing, I'd like to bring on a very special guest, our new president, Dr. Stephanie Snow, who has a video message to share.
4: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Stephanie Snow, a medical oncologist in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and the new president of Lung Cancer Canada. I'm excited to be starting my term as president and to move forward with a focus on equity in lung cancer and working on the regional and social determinants of health, those aspects that make lung cancer a postal code disease in Canada. To do this, I want to hear from patients and learn about lung cancer in each of our country's regions. I want to hear what is important to you and what you want us to address. To do this, I am launching a listening tour across the country, starting in my own region of Atlantic Canada and moving west. My goal is to listen to every province and territory. If you would like me to visit virtually, please drop me a line at president at lungcancercanada.ca or direct message me on the Lung Cancer Canada social account.
0: Thank you very much again to our panelists. I really want to give a special thank you to Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price and for his leadership in the last five years. I've certainly learned a lot and uh, and we've expanded uh, coverage and access to medications for lung cancer for lung cancer patients. And really, I was in a meeting the other day and, and people were saying, how come it's lung cancer patient voices that we're hearing about this topic? And I'm like, oh my goodness, it's about time. So that... Um, really has been to uh, a lot to the work of Dr. Wheatley-Price and, and his leadership with, of Lung Cancer Canada that we now have so many patient voices that, uh, that um, can speak. So I before I close, and thank you to all the p- panelists, Dr. Drian and Dr. Chima as well for giving us your time. The next webinar uh, in, uh, in the series is on July 8th and it is what's new in, uh, from ASCO. So thank you very much, everybody. Um, if you've enjoyed our webinars, you can, you can uh, re-listen to the again on, on our podcast series. And uh, they are also um, up on our YouTube channel and will be a vid- and video on our uh, website as well. If you'd like to help us out, um, please consider donating to Lung Cancer Canada. We appreciate any uh, donations that we're able to get. So thank you again and uh, have a wonderful rest of your day.
1: Thanks, Christina. And thank you all for listening. Thank you, uh, Dr. Drillon and Dr. Chima. It's a pleasure. Thanks thank
4: so much. Thank
1: you. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like, and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer, or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.